Well, good morning again, Disciples Church. All right, some of you guys are still awake. That's great. Um, <clears throat> this Sunday is our kickoff of our Psalms of Summer series. Uh, pastor Joshua, our regular preaching pastor, is on his sabbatical, uh, and we're going to be filling in for him over the next 13 Sundays. I think I have that number right. It's either 12 or 13. Um, some of that is going to be done by our own elders, uh, Rob and I. Uh, some of that's from our own teaching team. Uh, and then there's uh, some pastors who we've uh, been very blessed to do life and ministry with that are going to come and fill our pulpit for us in Josh's place. Um, if you were here for the last sabbatical, some of those guys are coming back and uh, really will be a, a joy to hear them preach in their psalms. Um, praying that uh, this time, this Summer is not just refreshing for Pastor Joshua, but uh, a blessing to you as well to hear from, from different teachers, men who love the Lord and who are well qualified to teach. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Psalm uh, chapter 11. Psalm 11. We're going to be in that psalm all morning. That's uh, the first one that I picked to preach on. So you won't have to go flipping around too much. I think I, I quote one other passage or I read one other passage of Scripture uh, during my sermon. So. Psalm 11, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, so blessed to have your word, to um, have such ease of access to it, to uh, dig into it, to rest in your truth. Um, Your word is such a blessing to us. It's a nourishment to our souls. Uh, It is the the standard upon which we live our lives. Um, It is truth, unfailing truth from the only being that has exhaustive knowledge. As we consider this psalm this morning, Lord, we pray that um, we too would cry out in the Lord, I take refuge. Thank you, Lord, that you are a, a refuge for our souls, that your Son has secured our salvation. What a sweet sweet refuge we have. It is because of Christ that we can pray. Amen. In this psalm, David has received some counsel to flee from his enemies because they're, they're coming to attack and they're going to do so in, in kind of a surprise, a, a, a in the cover of dark type of way. He is told to flee to the hills to hide out. And, and we see David do this actually on a handful of occasions in the Old Testament. He, he flees to the hills. He hides out in caves. Uh, he finds refuge in those things um, against his enemy. 
What's unique about this occasion in this psalm is that David refuses to flee. Is fleeing sinful? Why would he do it sometimes and not others? To understand at least his purpose in not fleeing here, we must consider what David appeals to. David appeals to the safety and security that is only found through faith in God. Well, what makes this time different than the others when he fled? Did he not trust in God during those times? Why declare that you're unwilling to flee now, and yet many other times we see that you did flee? Church, when you dig into the scriptures and you see these things, ask these questions. Do the work needed to understand the answers and and really enjoy the gold that you will dig up in the word of God. It's such a sweet, sweet blessing. Now, I'm not going to focus on those questions this morning because they're not the primary points for our time. Uh, I will circle back a little bit in closing to say a few things about it. But I really hope you will consider those questions a sort of teaser to stoke your interest in digging into the scriptures. For our psalm this morning, I'm going to be breaking it down into three parts. First, there is a a warning to flee and, and a clear turmoil in David upon receiving this warning. Second, there is a a unique declaration at the end of the warning that I want to kind of drill into a bit more. Uh, And then third, I want to to have us see that there is a turning to the reality of God's sovereign and righteous purpose over all and in all types of people, both the righteous and the wicked. So uh, if you're a note taker, my sermon points this morning are as follows. Point one, uh, warning and response. Point two, the absence of righteousness. And point three, God's sovereign justice. So let me say it again. Point one, warning and response. Point two, the absence of righteousness. And point three, God's sovereign justice. For point one, we're going to look at Psalm 11, verses 1 and 2. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. David begins the psalm by answering the warning with a foundation of God and him finding his refuge in God. In the Lord, I take refuge. Right out of the gate, David declares that his safety is in the Lord. But then he tells you why he's starting with those words. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the the wicked are bending the bow. They they have an arrow knocked. They're going to be shooting. They're aiming for the heart, and they're going to do it in the dark when you least expect it. The warning doesn't end there, but my next point will cover the last part of that warning. There's a clear warning here, and David is quick to say that this warning has to do with his soul. He's also clear to declare that in his soul... He will take refuge in the Lord. Now, no doubt this threat was a real threat to David's physical life. As an archer, I know what happens to something when an arrow pierces its heart. However, we don't want to glance over the purposeful use of the word soul. David's reply to this warning is really clear, really a clear declaration that in his soul he will trust only in the Lord. The Lord is his spiritual refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee, God is my refuge? 
Boyce said it this way, that this psalm contains faith's response to fear's counsel. We don't know who was warning David to flee. Uh, David doesn't give us insight into that. Uh, Most commentaries that I I read seem to think that it was either his friends or his enemies, which pretty much covers everybody, right? So surely it's got to be one of those. Uh, It seems that this warning may have stirred or, or tempted his flesh to find safety in something other than God. And his response was a spiritual reminder to himself to trust God rather than to give in to this fear and flee. I wonder if this is why David uses the word soul and heart in the psalm. Even if this wasn't the case, the outcome remains the same. David declares that his refuge, his safety, is in God and not in anything else. His trust and his faith is in God, who is his salvation. His faith was not in the protection of the hills. His faith was not in the forewarning of the surprise attack and and the time that it might have given him to flee from it. The psalm is clearly David sharing an internal reality due to the use of the language of soul. And here's the point. With the real concern of dangerous enemies coming, coming at a time when it's least expected, coming with the intent to end David's life, the turmoil that David is unpacking is not merely if it's wise to flee and be ahead of this situation. This warning, wherever it came from, seems to have tempted David to trust in something other than God for his safety. And so he replies, In the Lord will I take refuge. Church, when we are tempted to flee, perhaps even to be consumed by fear due to an enemy preparing a surprise attack for us, we can remind our souls that our safety is not in comfort or peace physical safety, distance from enemies, good hiding places, but in God, who has provided eternal life for us. And perhaps you're asking the question, well, is it ever okay to flee? Uh, We've seen David do it many times in the scriptures. Well, if this is what you're asking, I want to say something very clearly, though it's not the answer that you might be hoping for. This passage is not about whether it is right to flee, or to stay, speaking literally of physical terms. This passage is focused on the state of your heart and soul when you are possibly gripped with the fear of great danger. David is stating that he will not let his heart trust in the safety of anything other than God. There is no refuge for your soul other than the refuge you have in our Lord. That's the point. Praise God for warnings. Praise God for places to go when necessary to avoid real danger. But church, praise God so much more for this. Whether we avoid physical death from enemies or not, our hearts can trust, rest, and take refuge in our Lord. As Paul said it so well, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The last part of the warning that David addresses brings an even greater weight to the warning and um, what I believe to be really very practical for us. So we're going to move to point two, the absence of righteousness. Psalm 11, verses 1 through 3. In the Lord I take refuge. 
How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? David has been given a a clear warning to flee. The enemy has his weapon loaded. It's a silent weapon with a long reach. There's a real threat of physical danger. The enemy aims to kill. The enemy plans to release the string of his bow to let the arrow fly when it's dark, when no one is ready. And the warning ends with this. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This part of the passage really does become extremely practical for us today. Now, uh, in order to avoid any sort of narcissism, as if everything is always about us, throughout the centuries since David wrote this, and clearly for David in the time that he wrote it, it was applicable for him and for many others throughout time. God establishes thrones and rulers, governments and leaders for his purposes. The leadership of any country is put into place by God, and God commands that leadership to protect the people, to wield the sword against injustice. Now the key here is that for those rulers, our governments are to do this according to God's standard of justice. For clarity's sake, there is no other standard. All other standards are lies. They are false. They do not come from God, and they are not true. However, in the time of David and Ever since, even before that, governments and leaders have come up with their own arbitrary standards, ideas for what is just or unjust. And this is what David is decrying. When the foundations are destroyed, if if the standard for justice, if those who are to uphold it have denied God and have decided to do what is right in their own eyes, what can the truly righteous do? Again, according to God's standard of righteous, the only one true standard, what can the truly righteous do? Think of it this way. When a federal judge overrides a state law against perverse drag shows that allow minors, claiming that the law was unconstitutional and therefore stops a state like Tennessee from making this law and protecting children against this perversion, what can the righteous do? When those who are to enforce righteous laws take a child from their father and gives them to the child's mother, because the father does not agree with the sexual mutilation and chemical castration of his own then three-year-old child, pushed by a wicked, sexually immoral culture, what can the righteous do? I mean for you to truly feel the weight of this hopelessness, church. These are things that are happening here in the country that you live in. It's not some other country, some other weird thing happening. These situations are becoming far more common in our country and in our daily life. Our very own state has declared that if a child lives in a state where they have upheld righteous laws and outlawed gender transition surgery and puberty blockers for minors, that they can come here and we'll provide those things for them. We'll protect them from their mean state. Our very own state right now is trying to pass a bill that could potentially remove a child from your home 
if you do not use their self-proclaimed pronouns correctly. Think of how insane that is. Consider these realities and hear the cry again. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Our country has promoted the most wicked ideals for quite some time and done so in such a way that many, even some who profess faith in Christ as Lord, have bought into these wicked ideologies and unjust laws. So what can the righteous do? When those who have power to make changes have believed lies and denied God and truth, what can the righteous do? Church, when those in power decide we can no longer gather, or we can no longer raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, what are we who belong to Christ to do? What can we do? Do you feel the weight of it yet? That's what David's saying. That this enemy is a, a foundation. It's a powerful person. It's someone who is not supposed to do what they're about to do. Is it unsettling to your bones? It should be. It's the reality of many before us. And it seems to be the growing reality for us today. If you've not felt the weight of this personally, I have a growing concern that it may be only a matter of time before you do. Now let me be clear. I don't say that to increase fear or worry for you. We should feel the weight of it, but not the fear of it. I say these things and I bring this weight so that if or when it comes to your front door or your child's front door, you will say what David said. In the Lord, I take refuge. Christian, is your soul troubled by circumstances and unrighteousness around you? Then remind your soul where your refuge is. God is our refuge. Fathers, mothers, train this up in your children for the things that they may deal with will cause our current nonsense to likely pale in comparison. Solidify this in any way possible for your kids. Tell them to train their kids in this as well. When all the things around you that are supposed to protect you have turned against you in unrighteousness, do not be tempted to trust in anything other than the Lord. Christian, it bears repeating. Solidify this in your soul. Your safety, your refuge is not in man, in government. No foundation should ever take the comfort of your soul that only God can provide. God is our rock. God is our foundation, and that can never be shaken or moved. The foundation we have in God will always be just. When you are tempted even with the weight of the world bearing down upon you what your soul needs, what it is desperate for, is the truth that your only refuge is in the Lord. In the Lord do I take refuge. David begins with this as his basis. He tells us the warning given for why he should flee. And now let's turn to his finale as to why David takes refuge in God. Point three, God's sovereign justice. Psalm 11, verses 4 through 7. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. 
His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? They can remember that the Lord is on his throne. The Lord's throne is high above the foundations of the earth. I don't mean that in a spatial sense, like elevation high. I mean that the Lord's throne in the heavens is far more superior, far more powerful, far more dangerous than the foundations or thrones of the men of the earth. See David's reasoning here. He's tempted to trust in creation for his safety. And he's reminding himself or those that he's uh, being warned by that the Lord is still on the throne. Does it look like God is absent? He certainly is not. His throne is in the heavens. Does it seem like the unrighteous are ruling? They certainly are not. All the thrones of the earth could not bear one iota of the weight of the throne of the Lord. Acts 2, 29 through 35. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this is not the particular focus of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, but it still shows us an amazing truth that David clearly knew and trusted in. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the Father is making his enemies a footstool, a footrest, if you don't know what a footstool is. When all the earthly, earthly foundations are corrupt, where will we find our refuge? In the Lord, who rules heaven and earth, church. That's where we find our refuge. Now, in case you're tempted to think, well, if he's on his throne, well, why is anything happening? Is he just sitting there kicking back? Has he got his feet up on that footstool and just relaxing? Well, consider the rest of the verse. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. God is not just on his heavenly throne. He is observing all people. His eyes see and test mankind constantly. No one will escape this reality. God is again not absent. He is actively ruling from his throne, and his eyes are fixed on man. 
Those corrupt and failing foundations will not escape the justice of the Lord. Christian, remind your soul that the Lord is your refuge. When it seems like those corrupt institutions are avoiding accountability, avoiding true justice, the Lord is your refuge. The psalm continues, verses 5 and 6. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Just pause here for a second. The Lord tests the righteous. Seems maybe David was being tested. Would he trust in the creation or in his creator? Was there real danger? Yes. Was there real concern? Yes. However, David reminds us that his soul will only trust in the Lord. Now, perhaps you're thinking, but couldn't the Lord have just done all of that differently? That does he really have to test the righteous with like the fear of death? Surely there's other ways to test us. Let me remind you, whatever the Lord does is good and right and true. If God has decided to test the righteous this way, we can know that it is for our good. There are many here who have been given medical news that the cancer they have may very well take their life and do so quickly. Ask them how much their faith grew as they trusted in God, though their lives were in clear jeopardy. God is good. He is for his people. And all that he sovereignly works in and through us is for our good. The verse then addresses the wicked. It says that the Lord's, the Lord's, sorry. It says that the Lord's soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Perhaps you've heard the phrase that uh, God hates the sin and not the sinner. Well, that's not what this passage declares. It makes it very clear that God hates the sinner, the wicked, the one who loves violence. His soul does not hate the violence, though I'm sure it does as well, but he hates the one who loves the violence very clearly. I think the point here is that it also answers the question of, well, if you're on the throne and you are actively watching, then why aren't you doing anything? Why does this continue? How come these things haven't been destroyed? You have the power. In our have everything now, no waiting culture that we've been trained by, we may be tempted to not trust the Lord's timing. But it is clear that the Lord hates the wicked and that they will not go unpunished. We see this as the passage continues. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be their cup. See with me, church, that the wicked will not escape the righteous justice of God. God will not overlook the wicked forever. God is being patient towards his elect, not willing that any of them should perish, but that all of them should reach repentance. And then he will judge the wicked, and the portion of their cup will be horrifically terrifying. 
Finally, in verse 7, we see, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The Lord hates the wicked and will bring justice because the Lord is righteous. He is not only righteous, but he loves righteous deeds. What can the righteous do when the foundations of worldly justice have fallen apart? They can trust in the Lord, who is himself righteous and who loves righteous deeds. In the Lord's justice, he has wrath stored up for the wicked, and the righteous or upright have him. He is the treasure and the prize for the righteous. The wicked get wrath, the righteous get God. Church God is on the throne. He is righteous. He will bring his justice in his perfect timing. If the world around us is sinking deeper into its rebellion and hatred for God and all that God has called good, what can we who are in Christ do? We find our refuge in God. The Lord is in his holy temple. The, throne, the Lord's throne is in the heavens. His eyes See, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the upright, sorry, tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. We trust in the Lord because his throne is far above the thrones of the leaders of this world. We remain steadfast in our pursuit of righteousness and truth to honor God with our lives poured out, even when the foundations which should protect us and promote these truths have utterly disregarded them and placed their own false and wicked ideas in place of them. The Lord has not failed to see these things, church. The Lord is not asleep at the wheel, so to speak. He is not absent. He is actively searching the children of man and storing up wrath for the wicked with whom his soul hates. David is tempted to flee rather than to trust the Lord. He replies to this temptation by stating that the Lord is his refuge. Then he explains the argument given to him for flee, that the, the real danger, the real harm that's headed his way. And then he kind of encaps the whole psalm by saying, God is not absent. He has not forgotten the righteous. He is not weak or incapable. He will have his justice. Even when all around seems to be deadly, unjust, and aiming their weapons at you, God is on his heavenly throne, and he loves the righteous but hates the wicked. Consider the last part of the closing verse. The upright shall behold his face. We who are in Christ, we who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, We'll see the face of the Lord one day. Church, even if the wicked do become successful in taking your life, if they were to take David's life at this point, if his refusal to flee meant his death, what he knew was that the righteous would see the Lord. Even if the knocked arrow pierced his heart in the dark and ended his life, he would see the Lord. In the Lord do I take refuge. Again, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
Praise God, church, that we have an eternal refuge, an, an eternal hope, a victory that cannot be taken because it has been sealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is David's point and focus for his soul, and it should be ours as well. I do pray that towns, cities, states, our country would repent. I prayed for it this morning, and we'll continue to pray for that. I pray that God would bless our country with true revival, lasting revival. But if he does not, if the earthly foundations remain fallen, wicked, and unjust, we who have trusted in Christ Jesus will see our Lord. The realities of this will be all the more real when it's your child being taken from you or your parents being taken from you. It will be all the more real when our faith could cost us our life, as it does regularly around the world every day for other Christians in other places. The weight of this psalm will bear 100 times more when your personal experience is that of David's. And I pray that you will remember his words. In the Lord I take refuge. I have a few more things to say before I begin to wrap up. Uh, First, Considering the question, what shall the righteous do, it doesn't mean that we aren't proactive, that we aren't trying to push back the darkness. I don't want you to leave here thinking about it in in those terms. All I do is trust in the Lord and don't have to do anything else, and if I die, I die. Uh, No, that's not the point of the sermon. The, The point of the sermon and of the psalm is don't be tempted to trust in those other things. That doesn't mean don't do them. It doesn't mean don't push back in whatever ways honor the Lord, right? But don't be tempted to trust in them. Don't be tempted to call those things your Lord. They can't do anything for you. The Lord is your refuge. There may be a time for you to flee. When David fled, most often the Lord was moving him. He was telling him to go, to hide out, to do these things. Seeing danger coming and moving out of the way of it is not a lack of faith. That's just wisdom. If you're out for a jog and there's a car that's clearly not going to stay on the road and it's heading your way, move. Uh, Don't stand there and say, in the Lord I take refuge. I am not telling you that that's what you should do when you're jogging. Right? It's not primarily focused on physical things. It's talking about your soul. Perhaps the Lord would ordain a time in your life where the proper response is to leave, to flee, move to another state or another country or whatever that may be. This would not be sinful or wrong. Again, we saw David do it many times throughout the Old Testament. What would be sinful or wrong would be trusting in those moves for your safety or refuge, rather than trusting in the Lord. I want to end our time with this. Our our passage today declares that God hates the wicked and that there is only wrath awaiting them. It declares that God loves righteous deeds and that the righteous will see the Lord. If you are here this morning and you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
if you've not turned from your sin, if you've not placed your faith, your hope, your love in Christ, then you are the wicked. And God's hatred remains upon you. No one does righteous deeds apart from God giving them a new heart. What you must know this morning is that there are none who are righteous outside of faith in Christ. No one loves God, no one trusts in him, no one honors him, no one can do any good apart from faith. Scripture is very clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God has freely given eternal life to all who would trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You and I could never avoid the wrath for our sin on our own. We who believe were desperate for a Savior. We too were numbered among the wicked at one point. There is not one single true Christian here today that could ever be righteous on their own account. We needed someone who could take the wrath of God on our behalf, and that someone had to obey God perfectly. There is only one man to ever live who could have and did indeed accomplish this. That is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was perfect. There was zero sin in him, and yet he was crucified as a sinner. He drank the cup of the wrath of God. When we as believers do righteous deeds that please the Lord, we only do them because Jesus has saved us from our sins. We only do them because God the Holy Spirit is at work in us. We could not do anything to please God apart from faith. We could not do anything righteous apart from God. If you are here this morning and you have not turned from your sin and placed your trust in Christ, then you remain dead in your sin and will one day see and know the wrath of God for your unrighteousness. None of us who avoid this did anything to deserve avoiding it. Every true believer deserved the same wrath at one point. But God poured that wrath out on his son, his perfect son. So that when he granted us faith and repentance, we could be saved, we could be covered, we could be forgiven. Because of this, we don't want you to leave here apart from faith in Christ. We don't want you to get the wrath you deserved and we deserved. We want you to know the joy of the finished work of Christ. Even this faith that we profess, that we love, that we are blessed by was a gift of God, not something we did. No Christian in here can boast. None of them came to it on their own wisdom when they were dead in their sin. They had no hope but God so repent of your sin and believe in Jesus believe that he was perfect
Believe that he died for your sins. Believe that he rose again, that your sins are paid in full. Believe that he is not just a man, but he is God the Son, the second person of the triune God. If you would do this today, then when the world around you falls down on you, when the foundations are destroyed and unjust, you will have an eternal refuge in God. God will make you righteous through faith, and you will see him one day. Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in the heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. Father, what a sweet reminder to our souls. What a blessed gift we have in the refuge you provide. Man may take our life, our flesh, but they cannot do anything to our soul. Lord, I pray that when, if, whatever that might look like, when we, are, when we are tempted to trust in anything in our heart and soul other than you, I pray that your spirit would bring to our minds this psalm, that we would remember these truths. When things look dark, when things are wicked, we have refuge in you. If it's your will that our race should be finished, we will see your face. I'll praise you, Lord. Praise you for that truth. Thank you that we have such comfort, that that we have such safety in you. All because of the finished work of your Son. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would be bringing dead hearts to life this morning. I pray that no one would leave here loving, violence, and unrighteousness. I pray that they would leave here changed, saved, redeemed saints who have a refuge in you, all because of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.